Alright, um, this is Ross Payton with uh, Role Playing Public Radio. This is episode 8, The Role of Rules. And I'm Tom Church, and holy crap, is it 8 already? What? Yes, 8 episodes. 8 episodes. Holy and uh, we Lord. have a special guest co-host. Hi! Hello. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, I'm Dan McDowell. I've gamed with Ross and Tom for off and on for a few years now. Yeah. All right. We'll go. Uh, and that's really the only qualification you need to well, be on our show. Way to answer my next question was, was what the hell makes you think you're qualified to join us here? You game <laughs> Very with us. Little. Yeah. There you and, go. And of course, this is a proud member of the Goblin Broadcast Network. And uh, the music we're going to be playing on this episode is from the old ones, a H.P. Lovecraft slash Cthulhu Mythos themes metal band. So uh, Goblin Broadcasting. Yes. Embraced the goblin. Hooray for goblins. Yeah! Alright, yeah. Anyways, um, so we're going to be talking... Oh, also, one thing before we get started in our main discussion. Um, if you're from China, uh, if you're listening, if you're a Chinese person you're listening to us, uh, Ni Hao, uh, uh, hi. I've noticed oh, a lot of uh, uh, li- links, a lot of people from uh, music.soso.com and qq.com have been listening to us. So, uh, hi, how you doing? Please send us an email explaining... What the hell you like about RPPR? Um, Is it the fact that Ross looks like Harry Potter or Harry Potter? Uh, <laughs> well, which means I'm a white guy with glasses. Which that's pretty much all you need to. to well, that's another story. Um, <laughs> okay. The the the, the, the long story short, I went to Japan, visited a high, uh, junior high there, and they all the students thought I was Harry Potter because you're a white guy, short white guy with glasses. Well, actually, by Japanese standards, I'm very tall. No, oh, but you're a white guy with glasses. And actually, by most standards, I'm average in height, Tom. It's not my fault that I'm large, Ross. Yes, you're very large. That's no moon. Ooh. Ross? Whoa. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Don't make I'm... me... Uh, you're, you're, you're less than a foot away. I could hurt you very badly. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tom. No, you're not. But anyway, okay. let's continue. Um, also, if you like our show, uh, Role Playing Public Radio, please give us a good review on iTunes. Uh, please let us know what you think. Uh, we've got a couple of reviews on there. We could always use more. So. And uh, we're not number one yet. We're working on it. Yeah. We'll get there with your help. Yeah, those reviews will help. So, But obviously, if you don't care about us, I don't know why you're downloading and listening to us then. Um, but e- either way, if you do like us, you're using iTunes, please give us a review. Just uh, any few words. We're not making any money on it. All right, enough of this blatant self-promotion yes. stuff. It's time for the topic. Yes, the role of rules. And what we mean by that is what is the purpose of the rules in a role-playing game? That sort of seems like you know a dumb question to ask, but at what point... You know, do rules make or break a game? Um, you know, how, when should you enforce them? When should you not, as a player and as a game master? Um, I'll start by saying basically, 99% of the, not 90, but 90% of the time, you need to follow the rules. You need to, uh, what's been written in there has usually been play tested. The, and the important thing for a game is to make it fair, consistent, and challenging. If you, go off the rules too often, you'll lose those three traits, and I think your game will suffer. Rules are essentially the leash you use on your players. And your Yeah. And your like and also the shock the shock color you use on yourself. Remember, this is a game. The the ending should not be predetermined. The great thing about gaming over, you know, linear narrative is that we don't know exactly how we're going to wind up there. When I sit down at the table ready to run a game, I have no idea what the players are going to do. Most of the time, I'm shocked and confused, 
and uh, ever, it, you, it creates a very unique uh, experience. You ever read one of those choose-your-own-adventure stories? Yeah. They're pretty bad, but that's essentially what we're talking except about. Except the player, except other people write the entries, and they're usually violent sociopaths with an, you know, no more, no form of morality. Uh, uh, and, and usually, the dead. and usually, massively powerful, magical. If they were alive in the real world, they'd be looked upon like Hannibal Lecter would be. I mean, that's and they're on acid. Those are the people. And, who, those, like, that's the average player. And 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 they have access. And they have access to the most powerful weapons conceived. Yeah, usually. exactly. Yeah. So and also, like you said, with those kind of people. <coughs> excuse me. Those kind of people, the players don't sit down, and half the time they're not even sure what they're going to do. So everyone's in for a surprise. Yeah. Well, there are some that that know, like it's like I'm going to hack a computer this game, even if there's not a computer within a hundred miles. I have the skill. I'm going to use it. God damn it. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, computer or the each player has their own thing that they want to do in the game. You know, some are actors. They want to develop the story. You know, be very dramatic. Others are the one-trick ponies. You know, the I'm gonna do this, and that's what I do in these games. And the and the other is I will like I must rack up a body count that defies comprehension. Or I my real life sucks so badly I must overcompensate for it in the game by being, you know, the lesbian ninja stripper. Like, or my girlfriend just dumped me, so yeah. I must take my rage out. I must out kill on... all lesbian ninja strippers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the lesbian ninja stripper game of 1993. So um, I, I guess everyone here, you need to is pretty much the same way. You feel like the rules are the important thing. You shouldn't be freeforming it for the most part. <laughs> I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but I I, I just I, I don't know. I've seen too. I think the thing is. Uh, you need to learn the rules before you can break them, and because you, if you just break a rule because it seems stupid or you don't understand why it's there, then you're just going to create a really crappy, a really biased situation. And uh, as also, most of your gamers are probably pretty well informed of the rules themselves. Yeah. So if you start breaking rules, they're probably going to know. At least one person in your group's going to know you're breaking a rule. Yeah. Mm. That can, and you can lose credibility as a GM that way too. Yeah. So what do you think, Dan? Well, it's just. One of those things is there's I've heard people discuss that they change the rules or fudge the rules or ignore a rule because if you know as GMs even though you don't know how the ending's going to happen you do have an idea of what you would like the ending to be and there are situations where you feel that something's going on and if you don't tweak it in such a way then the ending is not going to reach where you would like it to be which of course on the one hand you've run dangerously close if not blatantly railroading people yeah but that's a problem. sometimes you do need to just coax your players back onto the track like you guys are we sat down and you guys decided at the beginning of this campaign you want to kill the demon lord of whatever layer of hell the endor let's just call him that yeah yeah <laughs> and then they're off and they're currently busy trying to find the secretive ninja lesbian stripper. Because <laughs> plus five. Plus five. Because yeah. and so you do kinda have to maybe just make the battle easy or make it seem like aha, you just can't find her. Yeah. Or it's act like a tugboat and just kinda keep nudging them in the direction they need to go. Yeah. Even while they're trying to blatantly do a one eighty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, the 10% of the times when you want to change the rules, it's usually something minor. Like, whenever I run a Call of Cthulhu-type investigation mystery game, there's always going to be the time when the player misses the, the goddamn clue. 
And you can't, you're like, all right, fine, you failed. You all failed your spot checks. You all failed your library use checks. You all failed, here's the clue. Okay, now go on. Because it's just, you know, the game, the players are totally lost if they can't figure out that one little clue that they need. Yeah, it kind of sucks when one thing, when something hangs on, hinges on one skill roll that everybody misses. Yeah, especially when it's in the middle of the game. And the other thing, personally, I have a tendency, a bias, I've noticed, to keep players alive at least until the end of the session. Because I really am self-conscious about killing a player in the middle of a game, and then he can't do anything for the rest of the session. So it's like, ah, you got two hours where you can't do anything, and one of the other players is your ride, so you're stuck here listening to us. Ah, you. Well... Yeah, it's not so much a problem with Call of Cthulhu. I mean, you can belt out a new character in that in ten minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's awkward to integrate a new character, but... But, you know, yeah. like D&D, good God. Or, yeah. or, or, yeah. like, or games where the character creation takes a long time. Like yeah. GURPS. Oh, uh, dear God. Yeah, GURPS is pretty bad about that. Yeah, and like Or Palladium, I, but, or yeah. God help you, Palladium. <laughs> well, we don't play that around here. No, we don't, but I'm just... I've played it. Yeah. So have you. I'm yeah, sure. no, we've all played oh, it. Oh, I've played it, too. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm sure. Um... Yeah, so I think uh, there there are times when you want to sort of nudge the rules to a certain thing, but there's you have to be very careful about it because, like I mentioned, you can sort of I, I I just mentioned my own biases, my own tendencies to get the game in certain ways, and I try and fight them. I'm sort of self conscious about them, but it's you don't want to just keep reinforcing your own biases because then you keep running the same type of game mm-hmm. and the same sort of things keep happening over again and you want to keep it you know fresh so i mean uh what, do either of you have you noticed any tendencies when you run games to nudge the rules in certain ways ways uh, there are times when i just completely like when i run D games that i ignore the dcs on skill checks for some things i'm just more so when I ask for the role, I ask, I'm trying to see how high they can go and then gauge from there what they can do as opposed to if they've done, if they reach this number, they're guaranteed this thing. Because in my mind, I've got all these situational conditional modifiers running around in my head. And so while the player will say, well, I got a 35, I should be able to get what I want. And it's just like, no, that's, that's not necessarily the case for this situation. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, and the uh, story to the gargoyles game running in the storyteller system. Uh, it, the old one, right? Not the new. Yeah, the old one, the old old world of darkness. Um, we play. We've been playing that for going on three years now, and it's. I mean, our char- the characters are so developed that even if they mi- even if they miss a vital clue, often we can have like a we can have a six hour long gaming session of just interacting with the players and some of the NPCs I have. So it's I, mean, I guess it really depends on really depends on the game and sometimes it's straight. Just, well, what kind of tendencies have you noticed? Any tendencies for you to bias the rules or fudge the rules in a certain way? Um, yeah, so, yes, yeah, sometimes I uh, I admit I I'm like a lot of GMs who run a really long lasting campaign. I have NPCs that I really start to uh, like. Yeah. And um, of oh, course you didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah, as of course, and some of them are antagonists but and there there's there's a couple of times that they've come dangerously close to killing him and i do not want this np i have as well as i have too much fun playing him like running this guy <laughs> and i just don't want to see him die so sometimes i've not so much the gm fiat but i would you know like i oh he had more cover than that your bullet missed yeah or I, I i see or i secretly i roll his dodge and like um yeah, he had five successes on that. So, uh, <laughs> wow, he's gone. Yeah, 
He's, or uh, that's a very common tendency. Uh, um, one and it, it's sort of hard once you've written something as a GM or you have something to let go of it. Or again, your preconceived notion of this is how it's going to go down. It's very hard to let go. And I think the sign of a good game master versus a bad game master is the good game master can let go when mm-hmm. it's the right time. Uh, a bad game master will do whatever it takes in his power to keep it straight. Now, like for your example. You know, you have your favorite villains, and it's okay to fudge a dodge roll or something like that. But if the players had him dead to rights, like they set up such a brilliant trap, you know, like a five megaton nuclear weapon that he just walks into point blank range, no way for him to... Or it's inside of him right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and you still say, nope, nope, he's he's alive, that was a clone, that was a robot double, ha 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 ha. Well, that would be bad. Yes. But if you were able to let go of him in that situation, that would be the sign of... Yeah, of course... I'm also helped by the fact that I'm not going to say my other group is not imaginative. They certainly are, but devious, they're not devious. Well, that's a hypothetical. Like, yeah, yeah, I understand that, but... I read, uh, um, the reason I thought of this is I read this post on uh, RPG.net where players are talking about, you know, dumb things players have done, and one of the thing, um, dumb things uh, game masters have done. And one of the guys mentioned, all right, I was playing D&D, Players were hired to figure out why these uh, goblins were being, you know, bitches and tearing shit up and just, you know, being like goblins. So they go there, they scout it out, they find the goblins are in this cave, they know it's the only entrance in or out of the cave. So, you know, I planned this whole dungeon, blah, blah, blah. Instead they say, you know what, screw this, we're going to get a whole bunch of dead bushes and brush and stuff like that and we're just going to smoke them out. Ha 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 ha. And I was like, son of a bitch. Yeah, and I was so, and since they knew that there was no way for the goblins to get out other than that one entrance, I, I just, you know, gave up that in dungeon I had written up and just let them, you know, win with that because it was a really good plan. And for me, you know, once I read that post, I realized that's the definition, because the game master realizes you should let them lose or win and then move on because there's always going to be another session. There's always going to be, a, you can always, you know, if you want to challenge them, you can always add something in later on. Don't get so caught up in that one thing. In that very situation, you could take that dungeon layout that you had, change the goblins to a different type of... Yeah, enemy, just use it again. And use it again, exactly, but just yeah. this time put that's, windows. Yeah. <laughs> give, yeah, give them a, yeah, a couple air shafts. Yeah, exactly. See, that's what a good, the sign of a good game master is like, well, all right, you win this, you win this time, but next time, you know, Richards... Yeah, and of course, so it, good I, game masters. I call that, and, and, and a good like like in that case, a good villain. They want they want they will want him to come back. Yeah, mm-hmm. if, if if they enjoy him, they'll. I've actually had a few few times where some of my villains I've really liked. They've actually cornered, but they let go. <laughs> they like they did that for me, and I went. I was. I think I truly. I don't. I never got a chance to prove it. I think I could have, you know, just accepted, you know, to you know let that villain be eliminated. Of course, in Mutants and Masterminds, they play do-gooders, so yeah. that, that's just easy. Off to prison, he could, right. escapes next week. Yeah, it depends on the genre. I mean, if that was D&D, you know if the you, players if would D&D, be like, they would, they would, they would stick have, him with metal swords. Yeah, they would have snuffed him out in stuff. an instant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, that's what you do to D&D villains. Yeah, and, and D&D villains obviously can be resurrected, but without their stuff, the villains are just little bitches for the most yeah. part. I mean, um, obviously you're going to get one, you know munchkin villain or a dragon or something that doesn't need loot to be good anyways um 
So that's sort of I think the the uh, what game masters should do. But this the rules obviously aren't just for game masters; they're for players too. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think about what role the rules take for players? I mean, how vigilant should they be? Uh, what are the dangers for players? Either following the rules too closely or not closely enough, or is that even possible for well, players? I know there's one game and there was one game I was in. Uh, my friend or a friend of mine who's since moved away is running where it was a it was a diceless system. Yeah, which meant almost there were no rules. Oh, this was Sean's game. Yeah, this was Sean's, and you know, you made you could make any kind of character you wanted, but there was no die rolls. So and really no way to judge how powerful your character was except what you said he was capable of doing. So really, it, the whole game for the, for us players was just especially it was built for player killing. You know, p, you know, player killing. It was built for that. Right. But really, that's just, a that's a sign. Yeah, bad sign right there. But it just boiled down basically to us doing saying what we're going to do and just him deciding uh, who should win. Wow. Uh, and uh, that it needed it needed at least a few rules to make put some structure to it. Right to make it. And when there are also situations where it seems like some of the rules seem to hold up the game, like one of the things that I guess even Wizards has said that they did wrong with Third Ed D and D is how grapple works. And I have experienced experiences firsthand because I played in a low level Eberron game where I built a character that did nothing but grapple. That is how he killed people with like, <laughs> grappling them. And You're just asking for the play, for to get killed in that game. Like the GM is going to say, "You're going to die. I'm going to disintegrate you, so I don't have to deal with grapple rules." <laughs> yeah, it's a oops, beholder. Yeah. <laughs> Forward level one, beholders still live. You know, they don't just oh, they're level one. I can't touch them. You know, yeah. and so there are situations like that where a GM would probably get frustrated with the rules that a player has chosen yeah. to abuse. Because if I got a hold of somebody, there's a good chance that I wasn't going to let go until they were dead. Yeah. So uh, you know, assuming, and then you have to figure out size modifiers, blah mm-hmm. blah blah. Yeah, that's that's a pain. So you kind of, well, you you you're technically okay to make that character. That's kind of a bitch thing to do, especially in three point X. Um, but obviously, that's sort of the other thing. You know, rules lawyering. I think, uh, you know, that's sort of the... At what point should players let a rule go, or when when should they challenge the GM? Because obviously, we all have the idea that the rules lawyer is just going to argue to death until he gets his way. But, I mean, should the players just totally accept the GM? I mean, when should they say, no, this, you're being blah, blah, blah. This is crap. The situations, like, if the GM's using fiat to do something, then if... They're doing it in the sense that you could understand at some point that they were doing it for the greater good. Mm. Then you, I would be willing to let it go. But in situations where the GM's just like, "You guys are frustrating me, and I hate, I hate you all. I'm going yeah. to use the rules to make you suffer for all the suffering you've inflicted on me and my carefully crafted campaign." So killing my NPC and smoking out my goblins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. Then that's, you're gonna start getting fudgy. Yeah. Right. Then then yeah. It's not as bad. Right. Tom. And it's especially bad like when the GM is running a system that not many other people know. Oh yeah. I've actually I've had a, I my the very first time I played GURPS, I had no idea what it was. I know it was point based. The G I, I now that I know he was making up rules as he went along. Who was running this? Uh, this was a this was a friend for another friend from high school. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I met I met him. Third I met, Ed, right? Third Ed Gerbs. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. And uh, yeah, he just 
he, I mean, he, I think he ran games solely to inflict pain on the pl- other players. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he like he made combat rules up. He made he made advantages and disadvantages up that he only gave his you know NPCs, mm. like you know a ten point version of invulnerability. To like, I'm immune to all kinetic damage for ten points. That's a well. He said, and we asked him like, what he has immunity to all kinetic. So anything that just hits him with force, and he's like, he says, yeah, he says. Well, he said that he said that all the villains we're facing are to the same level as we are. We have 150 points. How did? Yeah. And like, and he also like, and he also has machine gun skills and, you know, demolition skills and, like, we didn't know we didn't know much about this. Is we knew something was going on. Yeah. Well, I've got a question all in right. the situation of, say you have an inexperienced player. You yeah. You brought them in, and either they're part they're attached to a player that you know is a good player see also girlfriend wife okay, boyfriend yeah. even significant other significant other um, and they're not quite grasping the rules and the other players aren't quite helping them but they're still trying they're not is it okay as the GM to bend the rules around to let that player continue in the sense like if the scout or ranger character that they have built decides to try to be the party face and fails horribly at it according yeah. to the dice, would you still let them succeed? Um, I mean, again, I, it, it, I think the thing is with new players, you obviously feel the tendency to try and get them hooked on the game, mm-hmm. so you want to be a little easier on and, them. And usually and success usually makes that easier than failure. Right. But on the other hand, um, you want to show them that this is a game where you can win—not uh, win, but you know—you don't always succeed on stuff. Mm-hmm. So if they roll horribly, I think the thing is to make it entertaining. Like, say your character, you know, tries to talk, tries to diplomacy, but he inadvertently, you know, like if he's talking to an elf, he inadvertently mentions something that translates to be a horrible insult to their mother in mm-hmm. Elvish, and. Uh, you know, make it entertaining. You, you know, make it something that the player can work off of to show that you know while the character is trying to be smooth and all this other stuff that he's just horribly blunt. And because uh, you're, um, I, it also depends on the player itself, like how old they are. Like maturity comes in a lot. Like in the sense, if they're a very young player, tend they tend to like take losing very personally. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to put kid gloves on. Uh, on the other hand, do you really want to play with somebody who's always going to take losing that personally? I mean, you're at a point you're going to say, you know what, the dice don't always agree with you. Just ah, you know. But if they're yeah, this isn't a video game with cheat codes. Yeah. So I would say. Just say you you try your best, but you know play it up, make it really an exciting, interesting moment, and provide them with a new opportunity. Like I don't know, it depends on the exact situation, but yeah. I would try and spin it into something. You know, raise the stakes, make it a more exciting event, so they can see what's going on, and uh, to show them that you know they don't always succeed. So yeah, I was thinking, you know, come on, losing makes makes when you makes when you win all the more sweeter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're always going to win, it just gets boring. As so. like, yeah, as we go to the game, oh boy, here's where we kick everyone's ass we encounter, and you know, and like we like we're like we're just gonna be the biggest badasses in the world again. Yeah. So that's why you need the fairness, the challenge, and the consistency in the rules. That's why you need to follow the rules most of the time, because otherwise you don't get that. Yeah. Because. 
because I know you guys like when you're playing Mask of Nair Lothotep, you got you know when you really won, you really won because mm-hmm. if you know, it felt real, well, like, yeah, about as close uh, as you can get to winning in Call of Cthulhu. Well, yeah. well come on, like, I think so the happiest moments is like as like we roll like it's like crit, look at that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like when you're killing that uh, uh, priestess or uh, somebody in the African temple. I mean that yeah. really. Somebody rolled a critical hit on that head priestess when the thousands of cultists around her, and you only had that one shot, and just yeah. Or that time that my private investigator chased down a sorcerer in the middle of the desert when oh, yeah. the attack on the mosque, and just started laying, emptying clips into him, trying to get him to stop summoning things. Or my German guy on the on the walls of the mosque. See, the, you yeah. remember that, and if it was just a, you, you know, you've all I'm sure we've and, all and been in boring games where they're very easy and they're much more forgettable. Well, I, actually, I think you tend to remember your epic successes. You also remember your epic fuck-ups, too. Yeah. And you uh, talk about them just as much as you do your epic successes. Yes. Yeah. And also, like, situations... I remember when I started the first round of Tolis for, mm-hmm. with you guys, and you guys just cleared the entire house, no problem. Yeah. And then you got to the bottom of the dungeon, and... <laughs> Oh, yeah. There was an encounter that you guys weren't even supposed to open yeah. at all, or at least not yet, and you guys still opened the door anyway, and there was a horrible abomination monster that woke up and tore yeah. you guys a new one as you I were nearly died. Flee. Yeah. And that then, was my paladin, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you tried to run outside and found the cultists who... Yeah, that alert. was fun. I, I, yeah, I love that. I thought it was like, damn... This is tough. Uh, that was oh, yeah, a, I think, one of my yeah. favorite moments. If there's like the a th- if there's like a f- actual threat to your character's life and limb, I think it makes it a lot more exciting. Or just not necessarily life or limb. I mean, it depends on the game, but just total success or total failure. Because total failure can still make an interesting game. I, I mean, I still think the Yakuza game game I ran that was one of the most memorable games I yeah. I ever did. Because all of you just loved the ending where all the players, you know, it was a total party kill and everybody loved it. Because they're all died, you know, fighting the other gangsters. Well, you still talk about it fondly. Yeah, exactly. So I'll probably have to run another one sometimes. <laughs> and maybe we ag- might actually focus on some, you know, I, supernatural hell, elements this time. Well, hell, I'll just make it straight up gangster Yakuza or something like that. I don't know. But that's for the future. But, um, and of course, I'll be, um, so that's sort of what I think of. Does that answer your question? I mean, yeah, I, that's more. I was just kind of throwing that out there as food for yeah. thought. Is you know when you're trying to entice a new player, is it okay yeah. to fudge the rules, or are you going to set a bad standard? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is to show that the game is fun and exciting and interesting. And the reason why it's fun and interesting and exciting is because it's so it can change. It's very chaotic and it's very uh, a lot of all kinds of cool stuff can happen in it, and that can only happen when there's a real variety a real randomness in it i think and along with good storytelling good playing like you know all that minor stuff you know yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a characters <laughs> yeah who needs them um but on the other hand uh i think the last thing you know uh we should talk about a little is the level of rules in the sense you know rules light versus rules heavy i mean you know on one hand you can have totally free form games like sean's and then you can have like um champions Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I haven't played it, but I, you've seen the rule book. Yeah, have you? It's like the size of a phone book. Yeah, I'm, it can stop bullets. <laughs> like the people who designed the game, like oh, we shot some bullets in it. <laughs> See, and they post a video on their website or some fan. I mean, it uh, low caliber bullets, but still, it could. It's it a could, phone book. If you can plink a bullet with the rules book, yeah, yeah. That, that's saying something. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it says something. And the math involved. And people play it. They love it. There's, there's a, I don't know how many, but they... Um, 
So um, what what level of rules works best for you? And mention go ahead and mention specific systems. I remember, well, Ross, you were in on that game that John ran with uh, the Rises system. Oh, yeah. And it was that was about as simple as it gets, and you yeah. can still have dice. Yeah. And we had a lot of fun, I think, playing that yeah. game. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very rules-like game. That's like, you write down what kind of stats you... You, you have so many D6 worth of attributes... And um, you assign them in different yeah. areas. Uh, you different have awesome stuff. at five, so you roll five d six, and then that determines whether you succeed or not. You know, yeah. depending on, yeah. and that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And my best mutants and masterminds to me is perfect because it's I, the d twenty system is a good system, but I love the point based stuff and the fact that the rules are specific enough, but the details are left vague, so you can you can pretty much if there's people that play these games that. I, the people I talk to, their biggest problem with Dungeons & Dragons is they say it seems like, okay, when you're fighting it, all right, roll to hit, you hit, roll for damage. I think there, There's some people, they want, to, they want to do it really cinematically. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there are some D20 versions that fix that, like Iron Heroes. Yeah, and Arcana Evolved, but, which... But, you know, the players I play with, most of them, they prefer sci-fi and like superhero stuff to fantasy. Right. And they say that's perfect for them because they can actually... They can they can kind of describe what they want to do with you know the powers and stuff and that and the feats and mutants and masterminds and they that's love a little it. lenient on the rules heavy so mm -hmm. a little bit but well I, actually I think it is pretty rules heavy I mean not a champ obviously champions is mm -hmm. the thing but um, I mean like rules light systems I would say you know obviously Rhesus is the most one of the most rules light then you would have something like all flesh must be eaten the Unisystem which is pretty you know sort of medium call Cthulhu you know a little on the light side not too bad. Uh, and then D twenty is getting pretty complex, you mm -hmm. know, with skills, mm -hmm. feats. But I think, attributes. but the mutants and masterminds to me, it's 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 yeah, maybe, maybe rules heavy, but it still adds a lot of a lot of leeway to do what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like well, and even in other things, like I'm running an Arcana Evolved game, and one of the characters or one of my players, who's usually a very much, who's always been a much of a shoot 'em up kind of guy, has found a class that rewards you for being having an imagination and using its abilities. And so he's eaten this up. It's a class. It's a character type that he's never played before. Can you give me an example of like what he does, how he uses a? Uh, he's playing a rune thing, which in Arcana Evolved is a light caster. They're not as heavy casters as the two primary casting classes, and they supplement their casting ability with runes. And runes are essentially like you take the exploding rune spell from D and D, and you just change how it works in the sense that instead of in you can have runes that explode when people read it or touch it, or you can have it, it summons a bear, or you can have it teleport them to a specific spot. And so he's talking about doing things like using the rune of teleportation, tricking somebody into triggering it, and the end result is they get transported to right above the, his portable hole that he bought. <laughs> Okay. And doing things like that. And he's also talked all the different things you can do. Like you could draw a rune of persuasion onto a coin and pass it off as part of a bribe. And so the guy that touches the coin starts liking you a bit better. And it's just, it appeals to the nature of just like, what can't kind of stuff can I do? And... And he's been shooting ideas off of me, and I've heard everything from the coins to the teleporting into a portable hole to I'm going to bake a cake with this rune inscribed on it, and it's going to summon a swarm of bees. Hmm. So, just to annoy somebody. And it's just like, cake bees. <laughs> okay. Uh, and yeah. it's just, the rules say it can happen, but it's also, 
and it's balanced in the sense that you know a swarm of bees isn't incredibly difficult to overcome but right. it's still annoying right um personally it for me the rules it really depends on what type of game i'm running and how many people mm-hmm. i'm running it for like if i'm running for six people i want call of cthulhu brp basic role playing or something similar like that because it's very light it's very fast you know you make your percentile rules and that's it uh for the most part if i'm running something um that's a one shot or something with a lot of action cinematic action then usually I want something you know pretty simple, pretty light. If I'm doing something more complex in terms of um, the type of combat I want to do or the type of characters you can build, like the reason I'm using GURPS is because I wanted very for this Majestic Thirteen game um, because I wanted very complex characters. I wanted people to develop their characters, mm-hmm. and so really for me it really depends. Like I li- I can use I like really good rules light systems and really good rules heavy system the main problem i've had with rules heavy system is that you need multiple copies of the books and people need to be familiar with the game before they start it because it takes a it takes a while to digest a system Mm -hmm. i mean you can't even if you've read it it takes a while to really remember what type of rules you have to make remember the siege on the illithid city oh yeah yeah Yeah. that that yeah it's six hours of epic D &D combat and that was with me uh, master the D and D rules, third, you know, three point five, and everybody else pretty familiar with it. And that's it took six hours of fighting to get of in real time. I don't know how many rounds it was. It was like thirty or forty rounds mm-hmm. um, for all the characters to like lose all their spell points because we're using spell point variants and just you know at level twenty five characters last a long time in a fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it takes a long time to whittle them down to nothing or so. Uh, I just remember standing up for when we ma- attempted the level forty epic game. Yeah, and that yeah. So again, there's it 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 really depends on what you want to achieve. I think the rules do matter in terms of setting, theme, everything. The rules are kind of like the filter that everything else in the game affects everything else in the game. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all right. Um, so that's I guess our sort of overview of the role of the rules. Um. Anyways, we'll be back in a bit with gaming anecdotes, a letter from Tom, and, and... And you'll like this one. It's one that I belted out in 11 minutes while waiting between deliveries at my job today. So I just scribbled it down on paper. Thanks, Tom. That'll really let people know we're a really high-quality podcast. Yeah, it'll win a lot of people over on yeah. professional level. And, of course, uh, shout-outs and all that jazz. Hey, come on. Some people like, you know, improv. Uh-huh. All right, we'll be back. <laughs> First off, I would like to congratulate you on your accomplishment of forming an evil empire in Rifts, a game where humans are usually the bitch race, not the orcs. The death's head emblem you use to adorn your weapons, vehicles, and armor are an iconic symbol of cruelty and hate, and your ambition of conquest knows no bounds. You even have a son, more ruthless and cunning than you, to carry out your legacy. Your campaign against Tolkien was a prelude to other wars yet to be, and I eagerly look forward to those bloodbaths. 
However, I have noticed a disturbing trend that has been growing ever more obvious, and I worry that it might be a sign of ill tidings to come. This problem is even an asset to you, so I urge you to think long and hard before you act. The problem involves the uniforms that your war machine wears. They are excellent uniforms, dark and stylish, and with a flair that just screams, we are an evil empire. The problem is that the uniforms are too cool, and no evil empire that had cool uniforms ever lasts for too long. Nazi Germany, especially the SS, had the coolest uniforms in all of World War II. They inspired fear and awe in all those who saw them, and the Nazis only lasted 12 years. If you want an example closer to your tech level, look no further than the Galactic Empire from Star Wars. They had spectacular uniforms, huge star fleets, a planet-destroying space station, an iconic military warlord, and an emperor even more evil than the neoconservatives. And look what happened to them. They got destroyed by a group of ragtag rebels and a horde of cute furry marketing devices. What I'm trying to say here is that no evil empire with cool uniforms lasts too long. It's just a simple truth of the world. You develop uniforms that inspire fear and terror, and in a decade or two, your war machine will lie in ruins, and some no-imagination no GM will make you the primary villain in some lame-ass RPG. My advice might seem strange, but I advise you to simply accept your fate and go boldly into the future. Your evil empire will fall, and a newer one will rise, with uniforms as evil and stylish as the ones you have. In fact, evil is both equal parts greed, power, and fashion show. That's right, evil is a fashion show. The winner gets loads of worshipping fearful masses, great but temporary power, and the experience of getting your evil ass kicked by the far inferior uniforms of the heroes. But at least you'll get to stand on the stage, spotlights on you, waving to the cheering hordes of your armies and say, submit or die. From uh, me, from the heart, to the inter um, not the internet, the uh, Emperor Prosec and his yeah. uniforms. That's it's right. You're so pretty. Distributed. I'm so pretty. All right. Um, anyways, of course, now we have our shout-outs, uh, where these are things that have met with approval from me, Tom, and whatever guy shows up to do the show. Hi, I'm whatever guy that shows up. He's Scruffy the janitor. Yes, <laughs> the hobo. Scruffy loves his company. Uh, anyways, I got a few. Um, one is actually, uh, many of you know there are these things called play-by-post games where people do a normal RPG just on a forum, a message board somewhere where, you know, the game master right, here's what's going on, players post, I'm going to do this. Uh, usually I don't play them or read them because I have ADD. But there's one actually I found that is quite well written and is very entertaining um, called Blackbird Dreaming. It's on the traditional games form of somethingawful.com. It's a GURPS 4th Ed game, post-apocalyptic. Survivors in a shelter for a year, they step outside, and guess what? The world's all fucked up from a crazy disease and all kinds of nasty things. It's uh, 27 pages, like 1,600 posts so far. It's been going on for about eight months. It's a very entertaining game. I recommend you read it. So... That's my first shout-out. Uh, Dan, you had one? Uh, I was just going to give out a shout-out to Monty Cook's Tolis, City by the Spire. I've run, I'm about to start my third campaign through it, and 
yeah, every time I before I start one up, I crack the big book open and start reading over stuff, and every time I'm just in wonder and awe about all the planning, the thought, and everything that goes into this game, and it's comforting to know that I can open the book, find an NPC or a location, and it's cool enough I can base an adventure around it. You know, interesting to note, um, I was just browsing RPG.net today, and, uh, Tolos came up in one of the mess uh, discussions, and it's out of print now, and it's uh, like oh, worth over two hundred bucks now. It's uh, gone up quite a bit in value. Uh, also, Monty Cook's uh, Call of Cthulhu D twenty, uh, you know, it's retailing for forty bucks now. You can average for used for sales like sixty five bucks. So Monty Cook, he does good stuff. Yeah, Tolos yeah, is. I've looked through it. It looks it's a great looking book. So. Yeah, if you can get a copy, I would recommend it if you have the cash to spare. And to tie it in back to what it is, is that you know, you're encouraged to make the setting your own. And so you can use it as written in the book, but it's sent, presented in such a factual way with flavors, with the flavors in there. But it's more of a, this is an encyclopedia campaign setting. And this, it's just, you can use what's there and run it at straight from the book, or you can throw your own spin on it, and some people would say that's not following the rules because you're not following things as written. All right, Tom, you had a, a shout-out? Yeah, I'd like to give one to the uh, World of Darkness book, Project Twilight, which is all about playing, you know, government agencies in the World of Darkness, basically the X-Files in the World of Darkness. And I, I like it because I think there's something to be said about playing a, just a mortal in the World of Darkness who can actually hold their own in the you know in the in the world of darkness against the supernatural shit that's in every inch of the world you know what i think um most people know that you can probably get it at a used game any used game section of uh, your friendly local game store uh for very cheap and there's a lot of material for a modern day horror game that is not necessarily you know rule specific there's a lot of good stuff in there so if you're running a modern day Hunter type game, you should. Uh, pick yeah, it up. and actually, the the camp, the adventure they list in, which is a Saint Clair contract, is a very excellent. Okay. Uh, like, you know, good point. You probably game. easily adaptable to the new world of darkness. Yeah, and there's something to be said for having a mortal that, it, when you encounter a situation, you can actually have you know, if you have five dots in rank, you can actually call in an airstrike against something. There's something to be said for that ability in the world of darkness. Right. True enough. True enough. Uh, my last shout out is for a podcast I listen to quite a bit. Uh, Film spotting, really good movie reviews. Uh, it's just something uh, easy to uh, get into, and they ha both the reviewers know a lot about movies. And uh, if you want to hear good movie reviews, I would uh, recommend it. So. And speaking of which, that brings right. me to my last shout out. Yes. I'd like to give a shout out to a movie, which is the movie Shoot 'Em Up. And I say this because just like says just la just the other day, just last Thursday, we we well I forced Ross to watch this with yeah, Dan, and uh, Dan and I were of course laughing because it's quite it's quite funny and quite a, quite it, amusing. No, no. Ross, it looked like I was killing him a little inside with each minute that it's passed. It's just pandering. The characters are so shallow and two dimensional. It's just. There's nothing there, and, and of course, but watching it with him made all this come up, and uh -huh. that's why I made him watch. It. I wanted to watch it with him because I love to love. I like 
cheesy action movies too, but this wasn't a cheesy action movie. This was like a computer-generated action movie that was not written by a human. It was like a student film with a $10 million budget, you know. It's it's just like what, you know, first-year film student who does a lot of cocaine is just like, all right, this one is going to be cool. He's going to use a carrot to stab someone in the eyeball. It's going to be awesome. You see, this is why you watch a movie like that with a film student, with like Ross here, because this is what you're going to get all night long. I like good movies. I like crazy, cheesy movies, just not soulless, fake, artificial, bad yeah. To be perfectly fair, like I could have sided with you, Roz, like we said this yeah. earlier, that I could have felt that way about the movie, but I had the option after the first five minutes that I could either be pained by it or just laugh at the pain, and I figured that one would preserve my sanity more, so I just well, you, enjoyed it for what it was. All right. Yeah. Well, you know who else laughed at his pain? That's right. Hitler. <laughs> Yes. Gentlemen, we have brought up the Nazis in this group. Yes. It's official. God, yes. Uh, Goodwin's Law. Yes, we have now uh, I've, uh, uh, criticized my opponent as being a Nazi. So, so thank you, Shoot Up, for, bringing, for yeah. bringing that law into play. Yes. All right. Anyways, that's been episode eight the rule of rule, or the role of rules. Um, this is, of course, Ross Payton. Tom Church and uh, Dan McDowell. Well, thank you for introducing us again by yourself. Yeah. Like and us as do uh, we uh, I leave this insanity of rules, uh, lawyering and bitching about you know movies that are horrible, I uh, present to you the old ones and you know insane, true insanity. But before we go, I have one last thing: the gaming anecdote. A few summers ago, I was running a. All Flesh Must Be Eaten game, you know, zombie survival horror, where everyone got to play themselves. Uh, this was, of course, a standard. Uh, you know, everyone's run a game like this before, once or twice at least. And uh, everyone pretty much rolled up pretty standard characters, pretty, you know, that really reflected who they re really were, except for one, Jordan. He made a character with Firearms 5, which is the maximum you can have in uh, All Flesh Must Be Eaten. And uh, he's never been in the military. He's never been in law enforcement. He's not an Olympic champion shooter. And he's not a sniper of any sort. Also, he picked some disadvantages like alcoholism, cigarettes, addiction to cigarettes, and a few other things, uh, which never really came into play. He never role-played them. Uh, but I allowed it because I was too nice. And... In the end, though, it worked out because all the players made fun of him so much that he eventually regretted the decision, and I uh, had him killed at the end of the game. So, that's it for RPPR. Enjoy the old ones. Summer's of the girls 
Shall you dwell in the spirit? 